Today, I'm speaking with Joe Carsmith. Joe is a senior research analyst at Open Philanthropy, where he has worked since 2018. The deterministic twin prisoners dilemma. The experiment that convinces me most is, so you imagine that you are a deterministic AI system and you only care about money for yourself. So you're, you're selfish. And there's also a copy of you, a, a perfect copy, and you've both been sent, uh, you know, and, it, and you've both been separated very far away. Maybe you're on spaceships flying in opposite directions or something like that. And you're both going to face the exact same inputs. So you're deterministic. So the only way you're going to make a different choice is if the computer's malfunction or something like that. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to see the exact same environment. And in the environment, you have the option of taking $1,000 for yourself. So we'll call that defecting or sending, giving a million dollars to the other guy. Um, we'll call that cooperating. So this the structure is, is similar to a, a prisoner's dilemma. And so, you know, you're going to make your choice and then later you're going to rendezvous. So what, what should you do? Well, so one, here's an argument that I don't find convincing, but that I think would be the argument offered by someone who, who thinks you can only kind of control what you can cause. Uh, and so the argument would be something like, well, you know, your choice doesn't cause that guy's choice. He's far away. Maybe he's light years away. So you should treat his choice as fixed. Um, you know, and then whatever he chooses, you get more money if you defect. So, you know, if he defects, then, you know, you'll, you'll get nothing by cooperating and $1,000 by defecting. If he sends the money to you, then you'll get a million point one by defecting and a million by cooperating. So no matter what, it's better to defect. Um, and so you should defect. But I think that's wrong. And the reason I think it's wrong is that you are going to make the same choice. Um, your deterministic systems... And so whatever you do, he's going to do it too. And in fact, in this particular case, and we can talk about looser versions where it's, the inputs aren't exactly identical, the, the connection between you two is so tight that you just literally, like if you want to write something on your whiteboard, he's going to write that too. You can just cause, like if you want him to write on his whiteboard, you know, hello, this is a message from your copy or something like that. You can just write it on your own whiteboard. And then when you guys rendezvous, his whiteboard will say the thing that you wrote. And so you can sit there going like, what do I want? You know, you really can control what he writes. You know, if you want to draw like a, a particular kitten, if you want to like scribble in a certain way, he's going to do that exact same thing, even though he's far away and you're not, you're not in causal interaction with him. Um, and so I, I, to me, I think it just, th there's just this form, there's a weird form of control you have over what he does that we just need to recognize. And I think that's relevant to your decision in the sense that if you start reaching for the defect button, you should really, like, you should be like, okay, what button is he reaching to right now? He's reaching, as you move your arm, his arm is moving with you. And so you reach the defect, he's about to defect if you go to cooperate. So you can basically be like, what, what button do I want him to press, right? And I could just press it yourself and he'll press it. Um, and so to me, it feels like pretty easy, you know, press the send myself a million dollars button. Newcomb's problem. So the classic thought experiment that people often focus on, though I, I, I don't think it's the most dispositive, is this case called Newcomb's problem, where Omega is this uh, kind of super intelligent predictor of your actions, and Omega puts you in a situation where you face two boxes, one of them is opaque, one of them is transparent, the transparent box has $1,000, the opaque box has either a million dollars or nothing, and Omega puts a million dollars in the box if Omega predicts that you will take only the opaque box and leave the $1,000 alone, um, even though you can see it right there. And Omega puts nothing in the opaque box if Omega predicts that you will take both boxes 
And so, you know, the same sort of argument arises for the CDT, for, for CDT, you know, the thought is, look, like, you can't change what's in the boxes. The boxes are already fixed. Omega already made uh, her prediction. And so, you know, and no matter what, you'll get more money if you take the thousand. Um, you know, if you could ask, if there was some dude over there who could see the boxes and you're like, hey, which, you know, what what choice will, will see what's in the boxes? And you're like, what, what choice will give me more money? You don't even need to ask because you know, it's always <laughs> just take the extra thousand. But I, I think you should, you should one box in this case because I think um, if you one box, then it will have been the case that Omega predicted that you one boxed because Omega is sort of always right about the predictions. And so there will be the million. And I think a way to pump this intuition for me that matters is, is, is imagining doing this case just over and over and over with monopoly money. So, you know, each time I just like, I, I try taking two boxes and I notice, oh, opaque box is empty. And I, you know, I take one box, opaque box is full. I do this over and over. I try doing like intricate mental gymnastics. I do like a somersault and then I take the boxes, you know, I, I flip a coin and take the box. Well, flipping a coin, Omega has to be really, really good. So we can talk about that. But, it, you know, in the case, if Omega is like sufficiently good, then At predicting your choice at predicting your choice, then just like every time, I think what you eventually will learn is that you effectively have a type of magical power. Like I can just, you know, wave my arms over the opaque box and say, Shazam, I hereby declare that this box shall be full with a million. And then thus, as I one box, it is so. And, or if I can be like, okay, I Shazam, I declare that the box shall be empty. And like thus, as I two box, it is so. And I think eventually you just get it in your bones such that when you finally face the real money, I guess I expect this feeling of like, I kind of, I've, I know this one. I've seen this before. I kind of know what's going to happen um, at some more visceral expectation level if I one box um, or two box and, and I know which one leaves me rich. The idea of wisdom long-termism. So in the, in the thesis, I have this distinction between what I call welfare long-termism and wisdom long-termism, where welfare long-termism is roughly the idea that our kind of moral focus should be on specifically the welfare of future gen of the kind of finite number of future people who might who might live in our in our like uh, light cone, and where wisdom long termism is a sort of broader idea that our moral focus should be reaching a kind of wise and empowered civilization in general. And I think I think of welfare long termism as sort of like a lower bound on the stakes of the future more broadly. Like it, at the very least, the future matters at least as much as the kind of welfare of the future people matters. But to the extent there are other issues that might be kind of like game-changing or even more important, um, I think the the future will be in a, a much better position to deal with those than we are if we can, if we can uh, at least if we can make the right sort of future. I think digging into the details of, okay, what does that actually imply? Exactly how, exactly in what circumstances should you be focusing on this sort of, this sort of long-termism? How do you make trade-offs if you're uncertain about the value of the future? I don't think it's like a simple argument necessarily. It strikes me in when I look at it holistically as quite a robust and kind of sensible approach. Um, like I don't, for example, in infinite ethics, if someone comes to me like, no, Joe, let's not get, let's not get to a wiser future. Instead, let's like do blah thing about infinities right now. I'm kind of like, that's sounding to me like it's not going to go that well. <laughs> like, I'm just yeah. like, I, I think the like kind of our, our best shot at like doing well. I feel like you haven't learned the right lesson here. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's sort of, yeah. sort of what I think, I, especially on the infinity stuff. There's a line in, in Nick Bostrom's book, Superintelligence, about something like, ah, if you're digging a hole, but there's like a bulldozer coming, like maybe you should wonder about the value of, of digging the hole. I also think we're plausibly on the cusp of like pretty radical advances in, in humanities, like understanding and science and other things where, you know, there might be a lot more leverage and a lot more impact from kind of making sure that the stuff you're doing is like matters specifically to how that goes rather than to just kind of increasing our share of knowledge overall. Like you want to be focusing on decisions we need to make now um, that we would have wanted to make differently. So it looks good to me, the sort of focus on the, on the long-term future. I want to be clear that I think it's not kind of perfectly safe. And I think a thing we just generally need to give up is the hope that we will kind of 
have a theory that that sort of makes sense of everything and such that we sort of know that we're acting in the sort of safe way and it's not going to go wrong and it's not going to have backfired and and I think there can way there can be a way that people look to philosophy as a kind of mode of kind of Archimedean orientation towards the world that will sort of tell them how to live and like justify their actions and kind of give a kind of comfort and structure that I think at some point we need to we need to give up. On the classic drowning child thought experiment. And I think what that can do is it can sort of break your conception of yourself as a kind of morally sincere agent. And at a deeper level, it can kind of break your conception of society and your peers as a sort of, or society as a morally sincere endeavor in some sense. It's like things can start to seem kind of like sick at their core. And we're just all like looking away from the sense in which we're like horrible people or something like that. Yeah. And I th actually think part of the attraction of, of communities like the effective altruism community for many people is it sort of offers a vision of a recovery of a certain sort of moral sincerity of like, oh, you find, you find this community and it's, it's like, oh, actually these people are sort of maybe trying more so than you had encountered previously to like really take this stuff seriously to sort of act rightly by its lights. And I think that can be a, a powerful idea. But I think there is this, you know, then this thing comes up where it's like, okay, but how much is enough? Like how exactly how far do you go with this? Um, what What is demanded? And I think I think people can end up in a mode where their relationship with this is, is sort of what you said. It's sort of about not being bad, not sucking. Like you thought maybe I sucked. And now you're really, you're really trying not to suck. You don't want to be kind of punished or like worthy of reproach. And so it's a lot about something about like guilt. I think, I think that the thought experiment itself is it's sort of about calling you an asshole. Like it's sort of, it, you know, it's kind of like, ah, gotcha. if, if you didn't say the child, like you're an asshole. Yeah. Uh, and so everyone's an asshole. But, but look, look at how you're living the rest of your life. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I think sometimes, sometimes you're an asshole and, and we need to be able to notice that. But I also think... Well, for one thing, it's like it's actually not clear to me that you're an asshole for not donating to charity. That's not something that we we normally think. So I think that's like um, we should notice that. But also, it doesn't seem to me like a very healthy or kind of wholehearted basis for engaging with this stuff. And I think there are kind of alternatives that are better. On why bother being good. What are the what are the personal values of yours that uh, yeah motivate you to? to care to, to try to help other people, even when it's kind of a drag or, uh, or demoralizing or, feel, or it feels like you're not making progress? So one value that I, that's important to me, though, it's a little hard to communicate is something about, quote unquote, like looking, looking myself and the world in the eye. So it's something about kind of taking responsibility for what I'm doing, what kind of force I'm going to be in the world in different circumstances, trying to understand myself, understand the world, and kind of uh, understand what I'm what in fact I I am in relationship to it, and and to kind of choose that and endorse that with a sense of of agency and and ownership, and so one one way that shows up for me in the context of helping others is trying to take really seriously that I that my mind is not the world that that the kind of limits of my experience are not the limits of what's real, and you know in particular so like. I wake up and I'm just like Joe every day. Every day it's just like Joe stuff. I, I wake up and it's sort of this, this sphere of, of Joe around me. So it's sort of Joe stuff. It's sort of really salient and vivid. There's this sort of zone. Um, you know, it's not it's not just my experience. There's also like people and, you know, my kitchen. There's things that are kind of vivid. And then there's a sort of part of the world that's much more um, that my brain is doing a lot less to model. But that doesn't mean the thing is less real. It's just my brain is doing a lot, is like putting in a lot 
fewer resources to modeling it. And so things like other people are just as real as I am. When something happens to me, that's not a sort of, at least from a certain perspective, that's not a sort of fundamentally different type of event than when something happens to someone else. So there's part of kind of living in the real world for me is, is kind of living in light of that fact and trying to really stay in connection with just how, just that, that sort of other people are just as real as I am. And then I think more broadly, there's this, when, when we talk about forms of altruism that are kind of more fully impartial or trying to be kind of ask questions like, what is really the most good I can do? I think that's, for me, a lot about trying to live in the world as a whole. So not sort of artificially limiting which parts of the world I'm treating as sort of real or significant, because I'm not, I don't live in just like one part of the world. When I act, I act in a way that affects the whole world or that can affect the whole world. And so there's some sense in which I want to, I want to be not sort of imposing some myopia up front on what is, is sort of in scope for me. And I think, I think that's, those, are, those are both kind of core for me in terms of what helping others is about. 